Welcome back to Equality and Elevation, where we talk about the dynamic intersection of feminism and architecture, unearthing stories, perspectives, and groundbreaking designs that shape an inclusive and equitable built environment. I'm Lily, and we'll be joined with Flossie as together we explore the transformative worlds of feminisms in architecture. Hello, this week we are discussing accessibility in architecture and how that links to feminism. We are joined with a very special guest, Jess Watson, who is one of our course mates, and I will hand it over to them to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Jess, uh, my pronouns are they, them. I'm uh, the chair of the Feminist Collective and the Disabled Students Society. Just a little name drop. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, today we're going to be talking about accessible architecture. We've got lots of things to cover. We're going to talk about what accessible architecture is, um, why accessible architecture is feminist architecture. We're going to talk about how general architecture is often kind of bad. Um, and we're going to talk about why it's kind of bad. And then we're going to touch on the end, end on a happy note. We're going to talk about some good examples or even just like some good things that you can do in a design that make it more accessible. Um, so Jess, do you want to give us a little like maybe a definition or an explanation of like what is accessible architecture? Yeah, so legally accessible architecture is just architecture that follows part and building regulations, um, which are the minimum requirements to make a building accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, it's usually people with uh, mobility issues, um, so access for wheelchairs is normally the big one that people consider. But there is issues with whether <laughs> that goes far enough. Um, but technically, if you follow part and building works, then you can call yourself an accessible building. Mm. But that sounds like it has a lot of problems. I feel like, obviously, like accessibility isn't just like people in wheelchairs. You know, like can you give for people who might not know about accessible architecture or might not know about like architectural lingo? Can you give some examples of who else architect like accessible architecture might benefit? Yeah, I mean, accessible architecture benefits everyone. Um, <laughs> so true. It just makes buildings easier to use, even things as simple as making them easier to navigate. Um, I know the. This library in Seattle is a really bad example of navigation in a building because you go in and there is a big escalator that leads you up and then there's no like seeable way down and back out. So things like that are inaccessible because they're very confusing. People with sight issues, people with learning difficulties will find it very difficult to navigate that space because there's no logical way to follow through that space. Um, but there's all sorts of different things. Acoustics in a, in a space really affect people who are hard of hearing or are deaf or have other communication issues and auditory processing issues. Um, yeah, it can affect everyone in all different ways. But the more accessible architecture is, the better it is for everyone and the easier it is for everyone to use, not just the people with the disabilities you're considering. Mm. It's interesting because like things like acoustics, for example, like that's something that architects already consider so often. Like if you're designing like a lecture theatre, for example, like obviously you have to think of acoustics or like even the room we're in now is designed like there's like uh, I know that you guys can't see us for those of you listening, <laughs> but there's literally soundproofing right in front of us, um, <clears throat> which is convenient for recording a podcast, obviously. Um, but like it's funny because like that's things that we already have to think about. So it seems like accessibility is already things that we have to think about. And yet sometimes people don't think about it in an accessible framework yeah they consider it when it's for able-bodied people so there's acoustic soundboarding in here because it's a meeting room they want it to be quiet so you can't be overheard and you can hear the meeting but then in lecture theatres they put 
the accessible seating area where wheelchairs can park, normally right at the very back where there's really crap acoustics, there's beams blocking the way. It's always just considered enough to help the person that's designed it and what they think is going to be needed and that's about it. It's never really considered beyond um, just an able-bodied person and what their needs might be and how you could make that a bit more to maybe help people who have more needs but also would improve it for able-bodied people because it's at an okay level for them now so that actually leads us quite nicely on to the next question lily um can you explain why accessible architecture is also feminist architecture well because it's inclusive (laughs) (laughs) i think if you don't design accessible architecture you're automatically excluding people from your buildings and that's automatically not feminist um Feminism is intersectional and there's a lot of different um, intersecting characteristics that come under feminism and disability is a massive one of them. Um, And it's normally the one that's overlooked, it's still the one that's most stigmatised and it's just bad, it's treated bad. Um, But yeah, if you're designing a building that I can't get into, then you're not designing a good building. If you're designing a building that disabled people can't use, then you're not designing an inclusive building. So you're not designing a feminist building. Yeah, it's kind of comes on to like, I don't know if you guys think about architecture this way, but like being in a feminist studio group in university, like I've kind of learned that feminist architecture isn't really separate from good architecture. Like they are actually interlinked and anyone who says something is a good piece of architecture and it's not feminist or it's not accessible. And again, I think those are so interlinked is just kind of wrong. Yeah, I mean, for me, architecture is about the people that use it rather than the spaces you build. It's how people use that space. And I think by excluding people from that space, you're just not doing architecture correctly. Definitely. Um, So obviously we've established that accessible architecture is feminist architecture, but I'm sure as many of you will know, normal architecture, general architecture, most of the buildings that we use on a daily basis is not necessarily very accessible or very feminist. Um, So let's talk about why that is like, or even how that is. So let's first maybe start with some examples of like how general architecture is really inaccessible yeah okay so a lot of um the older architecture doesn't have to meet the current building regulations so a lot of our like reused buildings don't have to meet current regulations they don't have to have step-free entrances they don't have to have disabled toilets they don't have to have wide enough corridors any of these things um so that can be a real issue um and then even some more modern um, buildings they do have um, it's usually DDA compliant ramps although it is actually the building regulations not the DDA because that's our date but it's usually what is known as DDA compliant ramps that are um, a shallow enough slope and gradient as to be safe for a wheelchair user to use they're usually located at a different entrance to the main entrance so they're usually around the back or to the side or you have to ask someone to go and open a door or there's a club in Gay Village where you have to get drag queens to move the bins. And they're lovely about it, but that's not accessible in a proper definition of the term, even though legally it is. Because that's like expecting someone who is disabled or someone who can't do steps to require more of them to be able to get into that building. And that is just a bad design, in my opinion. Especially now, if you're designing a building from scratch, there is no excuse to not 
design an accessible main entrance. Definitely. And I think that's overlooked a lot in architecture school and just architecture in general. They're like, well, it fits the regulations because there's an entrance somewhere, so it's fine. Um, and it's just not. But yeah, I think retrofitting buildings, it's a bit more difficult because there can be issues but I think normally it's just given as an excuse that oh well we're retrofitting this building so we can't well we're just reusing this building so we can't fit in this because it's old and it's already got these steps in and I think that there's not enough willingness to engage in making a building accessible because they can get away without it and it'll be cheaper without it so they don't and then I think in the future that just gives more leeway for people to avoid making things accessible and it's sort of a spiral of well we've done the minimum requirements so that's fine it's always just seen as a checklist to do yeah that reminds me actually of um if you are someone who's listening from manchester and you happen to go to manchester university i would definitely recommend checking out if jess does any more femsoc talks in the future about accessible architecture because it reminds me at the beginning of this year i went to a talk that you did about um accessible architecture it might have been the hostile architecture talk it might have been the accessible architecture talk i've been to a couple because they're really good um but you talked about the manchester university student union actually and about how they have the ramp right at the back of the building and i always walk past it and i think of that talk and it reminds me of it yeah so the student union's building in at manchester university has a ramp at the front that was built in an extension in 2012 so there is enough space in the footprint of the building and in the developments for them to have made that ramp um, DDA compliant and like shallow enough. It's not. There's a sign next to that ramp, this little yellow sign that says DDA compliant ramp is located at the rear of the building. And then the ramp at the rear of the building goes down actually to the basement level and then you get the lift up to the main entrance level. Um, so it's already a bit dark and dingy. It's regularly barricaded off if they enclose the bar, the outside seating for the bar. Um, there's three gutters down it that are always broken and people's caster wheels get stuck in. Um, and then when there's events on, the back door is regularly locked and they actually just stick a sign on, on top of the yellow sign that says where the DDA compliant ramp is located and simply say this is the accessible entrance up the uneven and very steep ramp. I have managed to get my friend in a wheelchair up that ramp, but there's no way he's getting up that ramp on his own. And it was dangerous and it was just cause it was raining and we couldn't be bothered to walk around the back. But it, yeah, it's definitely not the best yeah. design. That sounds awful, I can't lie. Um, I know I'm springing this upon you because we didn't discuss it before the podcast, but do you have any other examples um, either in Manchester or elsewhere of like really poor architecture like not to just slag off other people's buildings but maybe it's situations where it's been really inaccessible I mean I did a lot of research on the year on campus so I am gonna be a bit slagging off the year on campus I'm sure there's other bad examples everywhere else but I know the Stopford building which is I think the medicine building has a really steep ramp that is just not DDA compliant but that's the only ramp up um, to the accessible door that you can't get in unless you have it on your key card but you have to go to the reception in the building to get it on your key card and then if you argue with them enough they'll let you use the loading bay door which is flat because then you can actually get up that ramp um, which is just ridiculous and there's a couple of buildings in the university that have like lots of little level changes like a couple of steps and they have all been fitted with like the really slow white 
uh, wheelchair lifts that make the awful noise, but they're not, that's not accessibility, that's just bad design that you've tried to fix afterwards. Um, and I know there's, a f there's quite a few buildings. A lot of the buildings in the Northern Quarter are quite inaccessible because they're old. But again, I don't think that that should be an excuse. If it's one or two steps, you can easily buy a ramp. Um, even if it's just a temporary ramp, it's better than nothing because it means you can actually get in that building. But yeah. Yeah, I know as someone who's never na had to navigate the university or <clears throat> Manchester at all really in a wheelchair, like I'm so used to just walking into a building and the only step that I need to enter a building is one step and it is walk in the building. Whereas like from the way that you've described those few examples of really poor entrances it's just so many steps like that's what really strikes me is like you have to like get a key card and to do the key card you have to get into the building in the first place and you have to talk to somebody else and then you have to like use your key card to get through the door and then get out the ramp and then you have to you're in the basement level and then you've got to go up the lift to get to the ground floor level and it's like never ending list of things to do yeah there's a lot of i think at most universities not just manchester there is um an issue with disabled students have to get permission to use certain doors to be able to get in their, ex their entrances that they need and to be able to access the spaces they need. And I think, I mean, it's an issue in workplaces as well. It's just an issue across the board, but it's most noticeable, I think, at universities because people are, have a lot of independence for more often the first times. So then it's also they're having to do all this themselves. And it's a lot of having to ask people to get permission to use basically to get into a building that everyone else has just been able to walk in since the first week of term um but yeah it's definitely a extra step <laughs> it reminds me of um in sex education like the perfect school the school's made deemed to be perfect but then there's isaac who uses a wheelchair and the the lift is always broken and it's kind of like ironic how the school is deemed as like this perfect like, everyone's equal and inclusive but then the lift's always broken and like it's almost like they've used that as even in perfect in quotation mark places there's still accessibility issues or just something which isn't thought about yeah i mean it's a lot of people say now we do really good architecture and we're really inclusive but accessibility is always still lagging behind and i think lifts breaking is the bane of my entire existence and I, I can do stairs, I just medically am very not advised to do stairs and I'm always put in that position of questioning is it worth me ringing a bell to be let in or is it worth me complaining about a broken lift or should I just take the stairs? I know me and my flatmate had the same issue Um, when the lift broke in our flat we were genuinely, like we were timing when we would leave the flat, we would leave alternate days each and we would only be able to leave the flat once because we'd only be able to get up the stairs again once in two days to get back in. Um, and it's, yeah, it's always, it's always lifts breaking. I had a, a, a rather heated discussion with my first year tutor about a building that I was doing that was over two levels and I wanted to do a big ramp up as a gallery space because it was a sort of exhibition space instead i also had lifts and i also had stairs so that everything was accessible and was you know regulation compliant but he didn't see the point of having this big ramp because he was like you have lifts so you was fine and we were on the seventh floor i think at this point in our studio and i sort of pointed out that like 
he was trying to tell me that I took the lift up here today, so lifts were fine. But as I pointed out, if that lift was broken today, he could have still made it to the seventh floor. Whereas I would have been in a heap at the bottom of the stairs. I wouldn't have been able to make it to the seventh floor. And it was a lot of debating for him to finally go, okay, fine, you can make it all a big ramp. Because if it was a big ramp, you can take your time on it, the stopping points, it's level, it was fully compliant and the shallowest you could make it to fit in the building. The entire building was basically ramp in the end. But, and it had sofas along the way and stopping points and stuff but it's just people can't comprehend they just think a lift is like a see your solution as well you can't do stairs it's fine we've got a lift but they don't think about but what if that breaks machines always break we've never got a lift that hasn't broken even in our building today there's only one lift in use um but like yeah people don't see that they just see that as a solution because then you don't have to take the stairs, you can take the lift. And they don't think about, but what do we absolutely need people to be able to access and put that on the ground floor where people can definitely access it regardless of if the lift works? Because there, like you can't design every building to be a big ramp, but I'm not under any <laughs> sort of delusions about that. But you need to think about if a person is coming here and they need to have a meeting, they need to have a toilet, they need to have a kitchen, they need to have whatever they are needing to use that building, they need to have access to at least some aspects of that on the ground floor or on the entrance level, because then it doesn't matter if your lift works or not, you can adapt around that and you can work around that and use it on the ground floor and the building is still at least partially accessible. Also talking about student accommodation, like my first year accommodation was all stairs. Like you would go in and you could, you the first flat was down like five stairs and the rest were upstairs. There was no lift, so there was no accessibility. So it just corners people to have to be in specific uh, accommodation because there isn't that much accessibility. Yeah, I mean, I even the accessible accommodation isn't much better. I was in accessible accommodation. Um, there was an accessible room that was adapted for a wheelchair user in our accommodation um, and the it was a catered halls and the ramp to the dining hall and the like reception bit no one could tell me if it was compliant with the building regulations um, and I was measuring it because I knew it wasn't and I wanted to put we were I was on like the halls exec team so we were running an event and I wanted to publish accessibility information for the event and I obviously didn't want to lie and say it was a compliant ramp and I'd asked the head of bars who like because the bar was through there he didn't know but he was asking people in the facilities and estates team and the answer we got back was always well it's an accessible hall so of course it will be and I was like no I know it's not I'm not asking to find out the answer I know it's not compliant I've measured it and I can also look at it and see there's no railings. But everyone just assumes that it is. They're like, oh, well, it's a ramp, so it's fine. And, oh, well, this is done, so it's there's a lift, so it's fine. It's never actually considered, is it done correctly? It's just, I'll look at it, I'll go, well, there's something obviously there. The automatic doors always broke, but no one ever thought about it because they just thought, well, everyone could just open the door, the door still works. But that's not why it was an automatic door in the first place. Mm. But yeah, accommodation, that. student accommodation is not the best. That makes me want to talk about actually um, the building regulations. So just really quickly for those at home who either aren't in architecture school or don't you know, know as much about architectural lingo. The building regulations are a set of documents released by, I think, the government that cover 
sort of guidelines for things that your buildings have the buildings that we design have to be compliant with so there's one that covers accessibility there's one that covers stairs and protection from falling so these are things that are sort of dictating to designers today like how big should a railing be how wide should the stairways be how tall can each step be um whether or not you need a lift in your building which you do is the answer uh, whether or not you can get away with a ramp etc etc and i think what like a common theme that's coming through from these conversations already is that a big problem in design today is the building regulations and it makes me want to think about one bit specifically and i won't be able to quote this so hopefully you'll be able to help me with this jess but i'm certain that there is a clause somewhere in the building regulation that covers accessibility that talks about as long as somebody in a wheelchair can use the building or can do the same functions as somebody not in a wheelchair in the building, they don't actually have to be able to access every single part of it. So for example, if you have a disabled toilet on the ground floor and you also have a disabled, you don't have a disabled toilet on the first floor, for example, as long as they can access the disabled toilet on the ground floor, that's actually all that's required. Or for example, if there are two staff rooms and one's on the ground floor and one's on the first floor, they don't, if like the second staff room on the first floor is really hard to access, they apparently don't technically need to be able to access that staff room, which I think is a horrendous clause. Yeah, I can't remember the exact word, wording of it either, but it is in part um, building regulations. And it's basically, if you can function in the building as in, say it's a library you can get most of the books out you can go to the toilet you can sit in a room and study it doesn't matter if you can't access all of it because you can access the main function of that building which is just ridiculous because you would never it's just segregation at that point I'm not gonna lie because you would never be able to design a building for any other protected characteristic where someone couldn't use a certain part of that building and that would be fine because the main functions just about covered um, and I understand that there are constraints in building and there are constraints in planning in terms of making a building fully accessible and I think it's impossible to make a building fully accessible for everyone but that doesn't mean you should not make your best effort it's used as a get out of jail card for so many people to just not make an effort at all and I think that's that's the main issue with it yeah definitely so why do you think it is so common for architecture to be bad in an accessibility manner? I mean, because architecture schools are pretty inaccessible. Um, I think for years, architects have mainly been able-bodied white men. Um, but it's been really hard to get, I mean, just for disabled people in general to get into university, never mind architecture courses has been a real challenge for the past forever really it's only recently that it's become easy enough for some some disabled people to get through university there's still a lot of issues with funding with help and carers and note takers and access to buildings on campus and access to support on campus but it is doable now um for more people but i think just architecture schools in general haven't been that diverse or accessible before um i mean even for us our workshop has only just got a bench that could you could use a wheelchair at to make model making and that workshop's been a renowned workshop for years it's you know it's the, one of the key like selling points of our school and just 
staff don't have an awareness of people with disabilities at schools, um, just in universities in general. And the buildings aren't always accessible and the workshops aren't always accessible and they can't quite cope with the thought of you might have to do something a slightly different way to get the same output. I can't use knives and trying to tell my tutor in first year that I can't make a model out of cardboard at the minute but I'll do the exact same thing out of clay wasn't good enough because he'd wanted us to use cardboard or foam board and it was it's that kind of thing that there's just there's still this culture of well we do it this way because we've always done it this way and there's no real room for like adaptability and thinking the other way and allowing people to do things their own way um and making just the education more accessible which will in turn make better designers because the only person that can I think the, be the, well, the best person to design an accessible building is someone with access requirements. I think it's a step to obviously be asking people with access requirements how they what they would need, how they would be able to use this building. But I think you're never going to fully understand it or actually consider it the same as someone who is disabled and has faced that barrier. Because we're designing what we don't want, whereas other people are designing what they think we need and that's not the same thing and that's never properly understood. Definitely I think um, another thing that that reminds me of to be fair is when you're talking about it sounds like what you sort of covered there is the two main reasons are there's not enough people designing with access requirements because they can't actually access the education to do so but also that and while this is while the first one is much more helpful, there is also a lack of people with access requirements being consulted in the design process. I think like it sounds like a combination of those two things in practice is what would really get us into a better position. Yeah, definitely. I know in first year we had a project that was to design some housing units for like a non-standard family. And a lot of people chose disabled people to design for, which was brilliant and part of the idea of that project. But then, there was no way to consult disabled people or ask. We were just told to think what we, just imagine what we think the disabled people would need. So imagine what you think someone in a wheelchair would need or someone who's blind would need in an apartment. And that is just perpetuating stereotypes and not actually helping anyone. I personally, I spoke to my friends about what they would need and essentially designed an apartment with my friends. And the Disabled Students Society actually offered to be, do like mini consultations, um, but it was kind of turned down and because it was already too late in the project and everyone had already Googled what a deaf person might need in their house and so that was fine, we'd done that. And I think that project actually did more harm than good in terms of designing for accessibility because, I mean, it was a first year project so it was shit anyway, but it was... Um, it was uh, definitely just sort of perpetuating people's ideas of what people might need and it was kind of from the beginning enforcing this thing of you know best because you know what buildings need because you've been taught how to design buildings so you can just work out what people need and then you know how it goes in a building but actually it shouldn't be that way around it should be a person knows what they need and you work with that and you work with that into a building yeah it feels like it definitely set the tone at least for me I know that I didn't have a lot of experience designing or around architecture before coming for my bachelor's as most people don't and I 
was I'm in a situation where I'm supposed to be being taught, you know, and I'm supposed to be being learning about these things and learning how to design accessibly. And as a result, that being my first experience of accessible design definitely set the tone. I feel like since then I've had lots of practices that I've had to unlearn and like reteach myself and remind myself that feminist design is user-centered design. And that means talking to users because, you know, we may be architects, but we're not mind readers. <laughs> it reminds me in um, one of my A-levels, we had, it was like a product design, so it was very design-esque, but we had to learn, there's like loads of stuff obviously, but there's one specific thing on accessibility where it was like this suit where people would, like designers would wear, and it would like emulate like either like someone who's in their like 80s who has less mobility, so then you can experience things, I can't remember what it's called and it's going to really know me, but, <laughs> and it was like, so you could see less visibles and you would have to drive and experience how like a 70 year old would drive but that was more concentrated on like people growing older I feel rather than like accessibility for everyone yeah I mean we're all going to get older and obviously more accessible design really helps the elderly mobility issues increase vision issues falls are more likely all possible but also I always think the elderly is used as an excuse to try and like convince people why you should design accessible buildings and we fully should design accessible buildings for them but it sort of negates the experience of many disabled people who are younger and we're already told a lot as sort of younger disabled people that you know you're young you're fit you're healthy and I'm really not but um it's yeah it's always kind of a oh we'll think about if it was you and it's like you don't need to think about if it was you maybe just ask me who's already experiencing it um, and I mean, it's it can have its uses, but I think it's always overdone as, well, I fully understand this person because I spent three hours living like them. And you don't because we spend years living like that. And it's, you can never fully understand. I have friends that I'm really close to that I've known for years who use wheelchairs and I would never fully know everything, every adaptation they would need in their house even though I work as a carer and all that sort of stuff because I've not lived in a wheelchair so I don't understand their needs as much as they do. It's never something you can properly understand from any sort of emulating. It is something that you just need to listen to people about more because they know best. Yeah, that was actually a really good point, Lily. I hadn't considered it from the point of elderly versus disabled people and people think like designing for the elderly rather as an excuse you know and using that as like a way to actually design accessible architecture but it does make me think Jess do you think that that has an impact in what types of buildings tend to be more accessible for example obviously if someone were designing a retirement home it makes sense to make it accessible for elderly people however things like clubs and I know you mentioned a club in Gay Village earlier so if you want to say more about that please do um, but things like clubs obviously no one is taking their grandma to Gay Village <laughs> um, so do you think that makes a difference? Yeah I mean I would just like to say I bet a wonderful woman who was 94 and St. Patrick's Day in the Gay Village but there are yeah it's it's definitely because it, even like a lot of university buildings are quite inaccessible because why would a disabled person ever be able to go to university? <laughs> And especially because they're quite old institutions, they would have never thought that someone in a wheelchair would ever be able to come and work here. Um, but yeah, it's definitely an impact and clubs are notoriously inaccessible. The Gay Village is probably one of the most accessible places to go on a night out. There are two step-free 
venues that you can go in from the front door and there is one where you have to go around the back um, and get the drag queens to move the bins um, <laughs> which they're very nice about but again it's an extra step but that's it that's the only three venues you can get into in the entire village and I think there's like 12. Wow why do you think it is that Gay Village is generally more accessible than other clubs in Manchester? I mean generally a lot I mean a lot of disabled people are queer there is a proportionally more queer disabled people than there is like proportionally queer abled people um so i think that and i think also a lot of queer people understand how it is to be sort of shifted to the side and you're not allowed in this space and i actually spoke to the owner of he owns two of the clubs that are the accessible clubs and i was talking to him about how we always go here because i can get in um, and you play the best music but um, he was sort of saying that like well of course darling why wouldn't we let you in like we've been told for years we're not allowed in these other spaces why would we ban people from these spaces when these are safe spaces anyway and I think that's really important and I know with the designing of the proud place I know that that was considered to make sure that that is an accessible building as well because that's really important space for queer people for those of you who don't know Manchester or don't know the Proud Place, it's a building in the centre of Manchester. In fact, Lily, do you want to tell us a little bit quickly? I mean, we're going to cover this in a later episode, so don't worry. If you want to know more, you will know more. But do you want to quickly give a rundown on what the Proud yeah, Place yeah. is? Um, so it's like very close to the universities. Um, it's like the uh, Manchester's LGBT centre. It was, I don't know when, it, it was rebuilt. A few years ago, I think it finished 2019, 2020 time. And uh, when it was rebuilt, they obviously explored making it more accessible because originally it was like an older building. Originally, it was a basement in the gay village. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I know when they were like thinking about where to move it, they were going to do it. There was a few places around gay village they wanted to rebuild it. I'll pick a place. This is where the, the original building, it's then been re like built again um but it's a very accessible space in my opinion when we had a little tour around for one of my modules it was like it was a great space yeah it's a really good space and it's a really important space but there's a lot of um like queer youth projects and stuff that go on there and they're all really accessible and just really inviting and it's just it's a really well done building because the main entrance is accessible, the lift is by the stairs, so it's the same, you come out at the same point the whole way through. It's really well designed in terms of accessibility, and that's a retrofit in an older building um, that I'm pretty sure had steps in originally, so I think they have actually done quite a bit of work to make sure it is as accessible for disabled people as it is for just able-bodied people. I know that one of the someone who was involved in the designers is a, like a tutor on our course and she was saying that they had to they were kind of having arguments with fire safety things about because it was kind of impending on their accessibility issues about specific fire safety and I know it was about the lobby area I don't know the specifics but they fought for the accessibility obviously fire safety is just as important because you need to <laughs> get out of a burning building but um they fought for the accessibility it definitely wasn't something they were willing to like compromise on which is a really good really good thing to see because it is a very important space definitely one that needs to be accessible 
I think this highlights for me as well, like, you know, a bit of a full circle moment. It brings me back to the beginning when we were talking about why accessible architecture is feminist architecture. And it just really highlights, like, if you are genuinely, if you're already, for example, in Gay Village, you're already designing a space that is going to make queer people feel safe and feel comfortable and feel proud, then it's not like it's not a wild step to be like, OK, let's design a space that's actually going to be accessible and make people with access needs actually feel safe and feel welcomed and feel proud and so it really for me like highlights that if you're designing in a feminist way you have to be designing in an accessible way and almost vice versa if you're designing in, in an accessible way sorry why are you not also making it a feminist way and it leads me quite nicely actually onto our very last point um ending on a good note can you Jess tell us some examples or some design strategies that are good feminist accessible architecture yeah so my main thing would be is sort of not scrap the building works because they're legally binding documents <laughs> but don't just add them in at the end as an afterthought of oh how can i just make this corridor a little bit wide enough design from the beginning and think how you're meant to design a journey through a building you always design a journey through a space and make that main journey that you've designed accessible. Put the lifts there so they come out the same place as the stairs. Make sure the entrance is level or has a ramp. And always follow that through the whole way through rather than just sort of go, oh, well, I've accidentally made this journey go up a flight of stairs. But it's all right because if people walk this long way around, they can get up a lift and they'll end up at the same place eventually. I think that's the key thing is designing that journey to go the whole way through the same. Um, and just sort of understand it's never going to be perfect for everyone. People with different access needs are going to need different things. And you can never have any part of a design that is fully accessible for absolutely everyone. So the key to designing good accessible buildings is having that flexibility, having a space that is adaptable so it can be louder, it can be quieter, it can be more open, it can be used by different people. And I think that flexibility in design and that adaptability in design is really important and engaging with who's going to use it and making sure that you consider disabilities um, and age or anything that might affect how someone can exist in that space and asking them how it's affected, not just trying to assume and work it out on your own. Um, in Manchester, the City Council has actually released a document that goes a bit further than the building regulations. It's called the Design for Access. I think we're on number two. Um, and it was written with various disabled people's organisations around Manchester um, and it's been adopted as policy in Manchester since 2000 and it goes a bit beyond the minimum requirements that the building regs sort of wiggles in at the end of a design process and makes the buildings actually useful. Um, so I definitely recommend if you're in Manchester or you mean you can apply it to any city so if you're studying architecture somewhere I would look them up, they're on the City Council website and they're a really good set of documents. We also have in Manchester the Disabled Students has an accessible building guide um, that has various like spots around the city, cafes, bars, stuff like that, that we've all gone and like audited and worked out and written the accessibility information for. So that's a useful guide as well if you're around Manchester. Brilliant. That is so cool. Thank you, Jess. We'll put those links in the description for the, this episode so that if any of you are architecture students listening and you want to access those, then they are fully accessible. <laughs> <laughs> accessible architecture joke. 
Um, but anyway, thank you so much for talking to us, Jess. It has been a pleasure. And to everyone else who's listening, you will definitely be hearing more from Jess soon. So, Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Editor Lily here. We would really appreciate it if you could drop us a follow on Spotify or whatever podcast app you're using. And on socials, we are a quality and elevation on everything. Wishing everyone a happy holidays, whatever you celebrate. And we will see you next week. Bye.